Did you have any impressions when you first saw them? Uh, yeah, it's pretty impressive. <laughs> For me, it's like, it's pretty impressive and it's so obvious how evolution works. Mm-hmm. Probably obvious is not the word because that's what we are trying to solve here. Like, right. how did they evolve? Mm-hmm. But uh, for me, it's like amazing. It's like how nature is, how uh, all animals uh, are just trying to survive and they do whatever they need to, to survive and they adapt. And you can see this uh, like uh, every day here in our, with our fish and with our models, how they uh, transform many things in order to thrive in a really, really um, drastic environment. Part of what has been so intriguing about the cavefish is that it comes from a deep, dark world. It is eyeless and ghostly white, yet its surface relation has eyes and color. When I first walked into the FAU lab building, I was struck by seeing the two fish side by side in the lobby aquarium. The cavefish, eyeless, pale pink, next to the Astyanik's eyed and colored surface fish. Since its discovery, scientists have looked at cavefish genetics to tell the story of how the same fish can look so different. I am Andrea Carter, and this is the Cavefish Chronicles, the story of one fish's journey from cave to lab and the scientists that helped pave the way. This is Episode 3, Cavefish Genetics. Everything in, in biology makes only sense under the light of evolution, right? So if you, if you don't think about evolution, you miss a big part of it, right? And, and evolution had so much time. There's another really my favorite quote, actually, by Nipon Patel, um, who said that most of the problems that you're working on, right, that you're interested in, any problem that you're interested in, probably evolution has already come up with a solution for it because it had so much time. I guess it's because it allows us to think about things that happened a long time ago. And in these rare cases, we can actually have a chance of looking back in time and trying to figure out something that happened a long time ago. We're learning so much from this little fish that has lived in a cave. And for some reason, all these these things that we associate with being really bad for us humans seem to be really good for a a fish that lives in in an environment that has very low nutrients. Turkish scientist Perhan Şadalu was the first to dig into the genetics of the cavefish. She is known in the cavefish world for breeding the surface fish with the cavefish. This was a key finding that makes astyanics a good model to study evolution. You have an evolved species and its genetic ancestor in the same lab. If you breed a cavefish and a surface fish together, they'll create hybrids, or the, or the first generation. We call it the F1 generation. This is Josh Gross, a cavefish scientist at the University of Cincinnati. And those individuals basically look like surface fish, um, in that they have an eye, they have normal pigmentation, and they, they look more or less the same. Now what's interesting is if you take two of those F1s, two of those hybrids, and you cross them together, um, they will have a family, a pedigree of individuals, and you generally want a large number of individuals, and you can explore uh, how different genes have recombined. And the output is that you'll have some members of that family will look almost exactly like the surface fish, some members will look almost exactly like cavefish, and then others will look like sort of a mix in between. So you'll get some fish that are albino, but they have 
a perfectly normal eye, other fish that are really darkly pigmented and look like a typical surface fish, except they have maybe no eye or a greatly reduced eye. In 1957, Dr. Chateloup published a paper, A Mendelian Gene for Albinism. Chateloup crossed the unpigmented cavefish without eyes from El Pachon Cave with the surface fish, noting the variant phenotypes, or observable characteristics, in color change and eye size. 26% of the fish had complete albinism, suggesting that a recessive gene caused this lack of color. Years later, this one gene finding would be confirmed using molecular methods. As molecular tools advance, scientists have been able to be more specific in identifying genes that result in cavefish characteristics. Meredith Protess was a graduate student in Cliff Tabin's lab at Harvard University when she first started looking at the genetics behind pigment loss in Astyanx cavefish. Using a technique called quantitative trait loci analysis, she was able to narrow down areas of the genome where genetic instructions for a certain trait may lie and create a gene map. Her research showed that a deletion in the gene OCA2 was causing total pigment loss in the cavefish. I asked Meredith Protas, who is now an associate professor at Dominican University of California, about Parahan. So she found that albinism was inherited in a single gene manner. And definitely when I was kind of starting out, it was so difficult. I mean, it's still difficult to identify the gene responsible for a particular trait. But it's much easier if it's something that's encoded by a single gene. So that was definitely helpful in kind of identifying that this might be a good trait to follow up on. But it wasn't until Suzanne McGow sequenced the complete cavefish genome in 2014 that scientists could demonstrate that a deletion in a certain gene resulted in a characteristic. Joanna Koalko did this in 2018 with OCA2. I um, always really thought they were just the coolest thing and never thought I'd have the opportunity to work on them until um, I was finishing up a postdoc at Duke and my husband uh, got a job in St. Louis. And so um, I was looking for jobs and sure enough, there was um, a person at Wash U in St. Louis that had a grant to study aquatic models of human disease. And one of those was the osteonics cavefish system. So I, um, I took a job there and before I even started the job, I had written a small grant for sequencing of the cavefish. It was from the Eppley Foundation for Research, and that was about $20,000 to sequence a lot of different um, populations of the cavefish. And so it really helped us get it, get it off the ground. In 2018, Joanna published a paper that showed a mutation in the gene OCA2 caused albinism in the cavefish. OCA2 is the same gene that causes albinism in humans and other animals. She used a technique called CRISPR-Cas9, which selectively targets a gene so that scientists can test its function. And so that was the first gene that we, we targeted using CRISPR-Cas9. And so we were able to, one, show that the technology worked, that we could mutate this gene in surface fish. We could make albino surface fish uh, by mutating this gene. After working with Breeder, Perahan Shadalu went back to Turkey, but returned to the United States again on a Fulbright Fellowship at Brown University from 1963 to 64. She was not the only Turkish female from the University of Istanbul who received a fellowship that year. A Miss Askadil Akarka, an associate professor in archaeology, went to NYU. 
1969, Perhen Chatelou published a study called A Second Gene That Affects Eye and Body Color in Mexican Cavefish with Anne McKee. Both were referred to as assistants at Brown University. This was a gene that resulted in brown-eyed fish with less pigment compared to the surface fish, which had black eyes and pigment. Josh Gross identified this gene, MCR1, when he was a postdoc in Cliff Tabin's lab at Harvard University. What we found, though, was that this receptor is totally destroyed in patch-owned cavefish, and uh, in being destroyed, it, it, it doesn't allow the normal amount of, of melanin to become deposited within cells, and as a consequence, the animals that carry this mutation appear um, brownish. And, and what's cool is that the same gene is very frequently mutated in humans, and when it's mutated in humans, it causes red hair and pale skin. So it helps to illustrate how, despite the fact that cavefish and humans are so different from one another, they actually have these genes that uh, still maintain relatively conserved processes despite uh, the long divergence time. I thought about how these scientists, in a sense, finished what Perhan Chatelou had started. Understanding eye loss has been another quest of scientists since the cavefish's discovery. Horst Wilkins was one of the early scientists who first tracked genetic eye inheritance in the cavefish. He was basically on the ground floor when the system was, was being developed, and people were looking at kind of the fundamental evolutionary question. This is Alex Keane, one of the cavefish researchers. William Jeffrey at the University of Maryland took the model in a different direction as a way to study development, the process from embryo to adult, by comparing the cavefish and the surface fish. His eye studies also set the stage for the cavefish becoming a biomedical model. And we started looking at development, and I realized they're an exceptional system to study development, which I was interested in at that time, the evolution of development, because you had two species, uh, we had we had two forms of the same species that were um, uh, you could study genetics, you could study development, and one of the first things we found was that cavefish embryos and surface fish embryos seemed to develop similarly, including an eye. So it must have been that the eyes lost during development in cavefish, and that turned out to be true. He discovered after early development, the cavefish eye lens went through apoptosis, which is programmed cell death, while the surface fish eye did not. He wondered if he could rescue the cavefish eye by creating a sort of frankenfish. So the obvious experiment to do was to transplant a, a normal lens from surface fish into the cavefish. And when we did that, uh, we did it on one side of the head. The other side was the control. It wasn't manipulated. And the outcome was uh, we grew another eye on the cavefish. So we, we made a cavefish with one eye that way. They ended up discovering some of the genes involved, one of which was called sonic hedgehog, which directs development from an embryo to adult. Sonic hedgehog is also found in other vertebrates and was first described by Cliff Tabin and colleagues. One of its jobs is to split the eye field into two very early in development. When it is suppressed in other animals, it forms an animal cyclops. Well, in the case of the cavefish, this gene was not silenced, but in overdrive mode. What Bill did, which I think people really didn't do other than him, is he was looking at a single medically relevant trait, right, or some medically relevant trait, like eye degeneration, and he was getting funding from the National Institute of Health. And I think it was, it was really important because it kind of set a framework for using principles of evolutionary medicine in cavefish 
to to look at human disease, which is a lot of what we're doing now. You know, when we when we talk about KFISH as a model for insomnia or diabetes or obesity, I see a lot of the foundations for that in Bill's work. So what are you doing in, in your lab? What, like, what's your project right now? Right now I'm working uh, uh, exactly with eye development. So one of the things that we're trying to to see or to solve is like uh, if this evolution of the loss of eyes, because all cavefish are like eyes, so if this um, phenotype evolved independently or how did it I mean, like, if the mechanism is the same in all these cave populations. It says Cifuentes Romero, a postdoc in Joanna's lab, had planned on going on the Mexico trip, which was postponed due to the coronavirus. Although she was disappointed, it hasn't affected her project too much. She is working with a transgenic fish line developed by Joanna in which the gene RX3 has been knocked out in a surface fish, resulting in a fish with no eyes. Basically, a surface fish has been turned into a cave fish where the eyes are concerned. Joanna is doing this by disabling genes and seeing the effect in the fish using new technology, CRISPR-Cas9, to create fish with cave fish qualities in the lab. So we want to take genes that we think have uh, mutations either in the gene itself or in its regulatory region, and we want to mutate those genes either in cave fish or surface fish, and then see what happens. Can we, for instance, in surface fish replicate or push them more towards a cave-like phenotype? Coronavirus closures also affected a spring semester course Joanna and Suzanne were teaching together at FAU, where the student project was to identify other genes involved in cave fish traits. So the premise of the course was to look for genes that might contribute to the evolution of cave traits in cave fish. And so how we structured the class is that we, people have done a bunch of genetic mapping studies to look for regions of the genome associated with particular cave traits uh, using QTL mapping, quantitative trait loci analysis. And so in these studies, the first one came out in 2006 from Cliff Tabin's lab. And so there are a lot of these studies that have been done for now many, many different traits. And I think something over like over 200 QTL have been Uh, found for different cave traits. But at this point, for very few of those, do we actually know what are candidate genes that sit under those that actually might be causing those traits. And for, aside from pigmentation genes, really none of them have been actually demonstrated to play a role. Unfortunately, we won't get to this semester um, because of everything being (laughs) <laughs> really wild. Evidence shows that Parahan Shadaloo was interested in expanding her studies to the eye as well. There is a record of a National Institute of Health grant she received in 1980 entitled Eye Development and Cataract Formation in the Mexican Astyanics. At that time, she was at Stony Brook University. In 1975, she had also contributed a chapter in the book Vision of Fishes. She started her chapter out with a line from Shakespeare's King Richard III, Act One, Scene Two, Thine eyes, sweet lady, have infected mine. After this, however, the paper trail ends, except for a record of her death in 1998. I still wondered what had happened to her. Over the years, scientific contributions in the field by Horst Wilkins and others eclipsed her work. But she still was known as one of the founders of the field, and from the stories I heard, passionate about her work. Today, the cavefish has become more than a model to study genetics and evolution, but also a way to study neuroscience and disease. 
More on that next time on the Cavefish Chronicles. This podcast was made possible by a grant from the National Science Foundation and was produced by myself, Andrea Carter, edited by Sam Houghton, with original music by May and Willa Mincer.